Would you go with me to John chapter 11? John chapter 11, as we return to John 11, to finish the chapter, if I finish this message, we'll have finished John 11, yes. Some of you were thinking last week, is is Lazarus ever going to rise from the dead? It's been a it's been a, a helpful chapter, an encouraging chapter. I've told many people that even if none of you have gotten anything out of chapter eleven, um, God meant it for my good. Um, it has helped me. It has ministered to my heart, and God's word is that way, isn't it? And we praise God for his truth, for his word. It ministers to our hearts when we yield ourselves before it. We come to John 11 this morning. We're going to pick up with verse 45 where we left off last week. And we saw this last time. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And verse 45 and following says, follow along as I read to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And verse 49 says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51 says, He did not say this on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. As I come uh, to this passage this morning, this question lingers with me, and I want to share it with you and and help you think through this passage with this question in mind. How should one respond to Christ, the one who so obviously works miracles? How should one respond to Jesus? How should one respond, I think, is seen in the response we see of some of the Jews who had who had accompanied Mary and Martha to the, to the tomb of Lazarus, and after witnessing the, the rising from the dead of Lazarus, 
Verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, seen what Jesus did in bringing Lazarus back to life, believed in him. Now, that should be the natural response, right? Isn't this what any thinking person would expect to see when one is raised from the dead? I mean, have you ever seen anyone raised from the dead? And we say if we did, we would believe, right? And and many of us, yet I, I trust, I hope it's all of us, have believed without seeing someone raised from the dead, right? That should be the natural response. You see someone being raised from the dead, walking out with the grave clothes still on after being four days dead? Don't you think that the people who stood around should believe? But that's not what we see in verse 46, is it? It doesn't say that these people believed in verse 46. It says, but some of them, See, some believe, many believe, but some of them, in verse 46 it says, they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, what could possibly cause a person to witness this, what, the greatest miracle of all, I think, this raising of a dead man to life, four days in the grave, body decomposing as those who stood around knew would be the case, don't roll that stone away. It smells bad by now. We don't want to... I mean, people did not think that he was going to come walking out. What a miracle of miracles. A dead man raised to life. What could cause any thinking onlookers to disbelieve after that? And we're baffled. Why, why didn't they believe? And I think it causes us to ask the question, what... What causes some to disbelieve in the face of such clear evidence, even if they haven't seen a a dead person raised to life? We have the clear testimony of God's Word. We have the clear testimony of believers who are changed from filthy, rotten sinners, right? Where we all were at one point to become more and more like Christ as we take steps of obedience. We're not perfect yet, are we? You just look at your neighbor and say, you're not perfect yet. That's easy, isn't it, right? You're, you're not perfect yet. And they'll look at you and say, and neither are you, okay? Right? But if you're God's child, if you have repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ in faith, He is changing you from what you are, what you were to what He wants you to be. If you're following His Word and walking with Christ in obedience, He is changing you day by day, little by little, to the frustration of some of those around you, not quickly enough, right? God is changing you as you become obedient to Him. What could cause someone to see the evidence of a changing believer's life and not believe themselves? What could cause your family members to be able to look at your former life and say, and some of us, right, some of us were saved later in life. I've heard some of you tell me your testimony before and say, 
back in those years before I knew Christ, there are people here who knew me then, right? Oh, what about your family who looks at your changed life? How can they not believe that God is doing a work in you and that he will do a work in them if they believe? It baffles us, doesn't it? To look at the evidence and just walk away. What causes some to disbelieve in the face of such clear evidence is, in fact, I think, the unwillingness to consider the truth. I'll call it self-imposed blindness. This is what happens when, in spite of very clear evidence, the mind has already been made up. And we grieve over people like that, don't we? I hope you grieve over people you know who you witness to and they will not believe. And and it just seems like they have imposed on themselves spiritual blindness. We ought to take them to the Lord daily in prayer. Yes? And ask God to give us wisdom about how to gently move them toward Christ. Lovingly helping them see Jesus Christ is their only answer. This is what happens when, in spite of clear evidence, the mind has already been made up. It's a refusal to believe no matter how clear the truth or how great the miracle. I think we learned something here. And it's this. Witnessing a miracle doesn't necessarily lead to faith, does it? Witnessing a miracle doesn't necessarily lead to faith. Some of us would say, well, if, if those people I'm witnessing to could just see one grand act... One big miracle, you know, one one big astounding thing, then they would, eh, maybe not. Some believe because of the miracles. We saw it in the previous verse, right? Some saw the miracles and didn't believe. They did not believe. Some believe without the aid of miracles. Miracles aren't necessary for faith, and just because there's a miracle doesn't mean there will always be faith. Sometimes we think people will believe if, if there were just be some sort of overwhelming evidence to convince them. Not necessarily. We ought not be discouraged and not stop witnessing because we don't see people believe as we hope they will, as quickly as we hope they will. Be patient. Remember, God is patient with you, right? And some of you did not come to the Lord as quickly as those who witnessed you hoped you would, right? Note also what's often true, where there's unbelief, there's often hostility. And some of you know the truth of this also. Some of you have been the giver of hostility before you came to Christ. Some of you have been the receiver of hostility as you witness to someone. I've told many of you this before. My my uncle Bill, my dad's younger brother, for many, many years, our family witnessed him. I remember as a youngster, my younger brother and myself praying as little children, God, please save Uncle Bill. Please change his heart, God. Please save Uncle Bill year after year after year. I remember my dad witnessing to him at family activities and things, and my my Uncle Bill would say, Get out of my face. I'm going to hurt you. And then he came to Christ. His wife died of breast cancer. God got his intention. His wife was a faithful follower of Christ, and she couldn't convince him to believe. 
And yet after her home going, my Uncle Bill came to Christ. And then he had the nerve to come and tell his older brother, my dad, how come you didn't witness to me more? How come you didn't twist my arm harder? <laughs> well, uh, because you threatened to knock my teeth out, that's why. We grieve over the lost, and we should. And we ought to witness to the lost and tell them faithfully of the love of Christ. And yet some of them will get angry. And some of them may threaten you or even threaten to disown you. Some of you may know what that's like already. To have family members who say, well, I don't think we can be friends anymore. <laughs> We're family, but they avoid you, right? Witnessing a miracle doesn't necessarily lead to faith. And where there's unbelief, there's often hostility. And verse 46 points to it. Not only were there some who did not believe, they actually act on their unbelief. They, it wasn't as if they said, well, we don't believe that and we're just going to go about our business and they left and went about their business. It was actually, they, they actually took action on their unbelief. Didn't they? They, they don't just ignore the miracle. They go away and, and they don't, and they don't just go away, right? They, they don't just say, well, yeah, you know, fine miracle, but I don't believe it and go about their business. They go to the very people they know are seeking to harm Jesus, don't they? They go to the Pharisees. They weren't going for the purpose of convicting the Pharisees to believe either. You know, they, they weren't trying to bring some convicting evidence to the Pharisees. Why don't you believe? If you believe, we'll believe. That wasn't their purpose. They weren't trying to convince the Pharisees. Their motive could only have been hostile. So with their report, they went to the Pharisees and the implication being something should be done about this Jesus. He's stirring people up. And look at the results of the report from these unbelieving Jews. A meeting of the chief priests and Pharisees is convened. Verse 47 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. And what's on the agenda of this meeting? The rest of verse 47, and they say, What are we to do? What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Oh, wait a minute. Did I hear that right? Did you hear that? For this man performs many signs. He does many miracles. Huh? I thought you didn't believe. Well, we don't believe, but we, but we can see the evidence. You know, he, he does many signs. He does many miracles. It's interesting that in the course of their meeting, they admit that Jesus has performed miracles, right? They, they're also later going to admit the effectiveness of Christ to gain followers. So, so what brings Caiaphas to the point where he's willing to lead the council in this opposite direction to the obvious truth? I see the truth. Don't confuse me with the facts. I'm going my own way. It's called, and we see it here, it's called self-preservation. Going in the opposite direction of the facts because they're self-preserving. Self they're protecting their own station and place and authority. And that's the danger of self-imposed blindness. And that's the danger we all face. Do you realize that? 
We all face this danger of self-imposed blindness, this self-preservation, this, this desire, this strong desire in our hearts to preserve our place, our station, you know, our, our authority. We self-impose blindness when we oppose God's word because it doesn't say what we want. And we catch ourselves doing that more than we think. If we're, if we're faithful to let God examine our hearts and convict us of sin, we'll catch ourselves saying, but I, I know God, your word says, but... That's not a good way to start an argument about what the Bible says either. I know what the Bible says, but... Right? We ought to stop it. I know what the Bible says, so I better believe it and obey it. But sometimes we act like that, don't we? We, we look at the Word. We go, okay, that's good. Close the Word and go do something else. We self-impose blindness when we oppose the Word because it doesn't say what we want it to. Or, or we try to explain away the very clear teaching of God because... It opposes the way we are living. There are so many people doing that in this world, and we, and we could easily be among them. God knows our hearts. But there are even churches who are trying to redefine the Word so that it doesn't convict people where they're living. In this culture in which we're, li- we're living, there are many people like that and, and preachers like that and churches like that, and we dare not be numbered among them. We, we better behold God's Word. And let the clear truths of scriptures shape our walk. And we better not water down the truth. We, we can do that. We self-impose blindness by saying, well, I, you know, I, I think it means something different than what it says. It's a dangerous place to live. We self-impose blindness when we oppose God's hand of provision. Well, you would say, I, I wouldn't do that. I'll take anything God will give me even if it's mixed with a little trial and tribulation? We oppose God's hand of provision and leadership because He's not giving what we want as quickly as we want, right? And we go about trying to get what we want our own ways. That's self-imposed blindness. And our self-imposed blindness is very similar to what Caiaphas suggests that when he suggests that Christ should be killed, only we don't want to be done with Christ so much. We'll take him as the suffering servant who saves us from our sins. We'll take Christ. We just don't want him influencing our lives too much. You ever find yourself there? When God's word starts stomping on your toes and your heart's convicted and you realize you need to change? You want Christ, but you just kind of want to kill his influence in your life just a little bit. That's self-preservation. And that's the power of sin in our lives. Sin self-preserves in opposition to what's clearly true and wise. We ought not go there. Each and every one of us is in great danger of looking at God's Word and ignoring it because it doesn't seem to profit us as quickly or as completely as we think it should. Every one of us. Every one of us is so inclined 
to the preservation of our comfortable way of living that that anything that seems to oppose our efforts of self-comfort, we cast off and we reject or ignore it altogether. We look at what's going on here and we say, how in the world can these people do this in the face of such clear evidence? And yet, if we're not careful, we can be just like them, self-preserving, guarding our own lives, our own livelihoods, our own comfort. And the more we cast off, the more we ignore God's Word, the easier it gets and the less guilt we feel. It's a dangerous place to live. So how are we rescued from the danger of self-imposed blindness and self-preservation? The solution, interestingly enough, the solution is what Caiaphas and the Council of Religious Leaders should have come up with themselves. In fact, it's such an obvious answer, they, they speak of it. This is so obvious, they speak of it themselves. Again, verse 47, they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. In other words, the evidence is clear. We can see it. He performs miracles. This man has done many miracles. What are we going to do with him? You'd expect the answer to be, well, uh, we believe in him. That's what we do with him. That's what we expect, right? But that's not the answer. That's not what we hear. They said, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you hear it? You see, the right response should have been belief, yes? But they say, forget the miracles. Forget the clear evidence. We're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our nation. And verses 49 and 50 say, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, Caiaphas said, Let's preserve ourselves and kill him. But even in that statement, he prophesied with greater wisdom than he knew. God's word makes it clear. The Apostle John tells us in verses 51, 53, look at them, verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And in the prophecy of Caiaphas, I think is a lesson for each one of us when we're tempted to self-preserve. And again, these were not the words of Caiaphas. These were God's words. Speaking through one who would harm the one and only Son of God. God was speaking through Caiaphas because of his office, because he was the high priest that year. And the lesson for us is that we must willingly, we must humbly 
and actively yield to the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is greater than the greatest wisdom of man. And we will be well served by God and well served by His Word if we will get this lesson down and and learn it early in our walk with Christ and practice it daily, willingly, humbly, actively, yielding to the wisdom of God. Why? Just think of God's wisdom shown in the words of Caiaphas in spite of his own intent. He intended something totally different from what he from what he prophesied by God's hand. Caiaphas meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Think of it. God's wisdom God's wisdom is such that he saw fit to use the wicked selfishness of mankind to preserve the very souls of all who believe in his son. The wickedness of God, of mankind God uses that to miraculously preserve the souls of all who will come and put their faith in Jesus Christ. God uses the evil intentions of of wicked and ungodly men for His unbelievable plan of grace. And there are two powerful examples of how God preserves those who believe in the Son of God in what Caiaphas spoke. In verse 51, John says that Jesus would die for the nation. Do you see it? That's the substitutionary death of Christ. Think of it. Christ would not die for any wrong he had done, right? Christ was not going to die because he was a sinner. He had not sinned. And that's why what these religious leaders are doing seems so foolish. Christ had only done good, right? Christ had come and lived a sinless life and had only done good. He had only served people. That's why his death is substitutionary. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the substitutionary death of Christ. We've got to praise God that God uses the wicked intentions of mankind to fulfill His good purposes. He substitutes His Son In our place, He places His Son on the cross. And on His shoulders, He places your sin and mine. The second powerful example of how God preserves those who believe in the Son of God, John points to in verse 52, that that Jesus' death wouldn't only be for the nation of Israel, but also, it says in verse 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, who are these children of God who are scattered abroad? They are, they are the same ones Jesus speaks of back in John chapter 6 and verse 37 when he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
And in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, when he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So think about this. And included in the children of God who are scattered abroad are not only Jews, but also Gentiles. We're talking about God's global plan to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's global plan to save all His children scattered abroad through Jesus Christ. All the Father has given the Son, all of them, scattered all over the earth, will be gathered in and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go, spread the gospel, preach the truth, tell unbelievers the truth that they need to believe in to be saved. So we ought to praise God, for it's by his great wisdom And His mighty hand, He turns the wickedness of mankind to serve His gracious, life-giving, soul-saving purposes to bring salvation, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God is at work. And we must be faithful. And we must not stop telling unbelievers about Jesus Christ. You must go into your neighborhoods. You must go to work this week. You must go to school when you go, young people, when you go back to school in the fall. You got a desire to live for Christ and make Him known. When you go to work, when you go back to your neighborhoods and you speak to your neighbors, you got a desire to make Christ known with your life first, with your lips. I say life first because if you live one way and speak another, they're not going to hear you. Right? So we need to live for Christ. We need to take these truths and obey God's Word and trust Him that even in the most difficult of circumstances, God is working. You may not enjoy what you're facing. You may not enjoy the trial that you endure, but endure it for God's sake, for the Gospel's sake. Because God can take the wickedness and does take the wickedness of mankind and turns it to be used for His glory so that people will be saved and the gospel will move further and further. So when opposition comes, and it will, if you live for Christ, opposition will come. And when faced with difficulty and hardship and pain and grief, and you will be, God's Word tells His followers, you will have trouble. But I'm your peace, right? God gives us peace to endure for the sake of Christ. So when you face hardship and pain and grief, when you face opposition, Where should you look? You look to the life giver. You look to Christ. You believe in Him. You look to His Word. You have faith in His promises. And you you take strength in the faith that He gives you as you faithfully obey His Word. 
And you take courage and you boldly and yet humbly yield before God. I say boldly. You can, you can boldly yield to God because He's in control. But you yield humbly before His presence and His Word. Yield to the wisdom of God in every situation you face. And praise Him for His glorious goodness to provide for your every, every need. Trust Christ. Believe in Him. Obey Him. Think not of your own preservation. Think of the provision that's already yours to enjoy in Christ when you believe in Him and walk with Him faithfully. Let's pray. Oh, precious Heavenly Father, oh, that You would be precious to us. And oh, that we would faithfully follow You that we would obey you even when we look around and think, this may not go well for me. We can trust your sovereign hand. We can trust your providential hand of provision. God, help us, strengthen us in our walk with you to have great faith, to be strengthened, to, to trust you even when it's very hard to believe that what we face could could possibly in any way be good for us. We see it again and again in your word. I believe that many of us, if not most of us, have seen your faithfulness in our own lives. So God, help us to not account for the evidence and then discount it and discard it and choose to be blind to the evidence that's right before our eyes, that you can be trusted and that you are faithful and true and you provide just what we need when we need it. Help us to have faith, Lord. Strengthen us in our walk with you. Help us to be obedient for God's glory, that we might glorify the Son, that we might make Him known, and that we might live with the peace that passes all understanding that only you can provide. And God, I pray, you know, you know if there are unbelieving hearts here today, God, I pray, do not let them persist in their unbelief. God, I pray that they would not hear the truths of your word today and say, yes, I see, but I don't believe. Oh, God, melt their hearts. Draw them to yourself. Help them to see that Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, the sinless Son, was sacrificed for their sins. Help them to believe. Help them to repent of their sin before you right now, Lord, and come to you in prayer and say, God, I believe. I repent that I am a sinner. I want to be saved. I believe in Jesus Christ. Help them now, Lord. Draw them to yourself. God, I pray, help your church to be strengthened with these truths, to go into the week ahead, to live more faithfully, more powerfully, more boldly, and yet humbly for Christ, that we might clearly make Christ known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.